Dearly beloved, we are joining here today to commemorate yet another week where Maya spent twice the time that she dedicated to research because she just went down a rabbit hole. Who is Maya? Oh, she's a host of this podcast that you have just tuned into. And uh, the podcast is called By All Means Necessary. You would tell me if I have chocolate around my mouth, right? Yeah. Do, do you not understand? After like what, almost 70 episodes, you still don't understand how podcasts work, Maya? That it's not like radio, it's not real time, it's not live television where people tell you this shit? What are we talking about today, everybody? We're talking about 10 evil human experiments, according to, to this girl, right? I thought as a pattern of this month, it would be great to have like listicles, you know, top 10 of something and do the lesser known ones, because of course, like, you know, this whole podcast is kind of to try make you aware of the lesser known, by all means necessary cases, or when it comes to minisodes, lesser known Patterns, experiments, all of that jazz. So I just want to give a disclaimer, <laughs> because yet again, if this is by any chance your first time listening to this podcast, I kind of take a curveball at times. So everything on this list is disturbing, don't get me wrong, just know that before diving into this episode. But the drop down between number five and number one is some of the most disturbing things I have read in my freaking life. I actually audibly gasped and said, what the fuck am I reading when it comes to number one? So I'll stop babbling now and let's dive into the experiments. Before diving into number 10, I just wanted to say that right now you would not, you should not get any ideas because you wouldn't be able to conduct any of these experiments. They're like ethical boards and committees and you need to like petition in order to apply to do anything, any sort of like human experiment you might think of. And in the US, you would petition to American Psychological Association, APA, that has a code of conduct. And you must follow it when conducting any kind of experiment, whether it is on animals, whether it is on humans. And here in the UK, in 1990, they established ethical principles for conducting research with human participants. Okay? So don't fuck with animals and don't fuck with humans is going to be the moral of this story. Now, onto the list. Number 10. In number 10 of our list of evil experiments on humans is Monster Study. Monster Study was a study conducted in 1939 by speech pathologists of the University of Iowa. And their hypothesis was that stuttering was a learned behavior caused by a child's anxiety about speaking. So this speech pathologist, who was pioneering at the time because it was 1939, his name was Wendell Johnson. He suffered from severe stuttering that began in the early childhood. So his own experience kind of pushed him towards this research. And his brilliant, sadistical mind thought, why not test it on children? And why not test negative reinforcement on children to see if that is going to actually enforce their stuttering? So he chose one graduate student, which is kind of what people usually do in these studies. Her name was Mary Tudor, and she was to conduct the experiment using 22 children in Iowa's orphanage. You see a couple of ethical problems? Well, that's only the beginning. Because they told these kids that they're receiving speech therapy. 
So they kind of lulled them into it, and then they split them in half. So this bitch Mary would travel every week to this orphanage where she would have this 45-minute speech therapy with each group. She would split these 22 children in two groups. One of them were stutters, and to them she would use positive reinforcement. So she'd be like, you will, I would grow it one day, it will get better, you should actually try and practice in public. It was all just positive. You know, you're going to speed up for a time machine one day and give a TED talk, all of that. The second group were actually non-stutters, and to them, she would bully the shit out of them. She would criticize them for their speech, say that they should use the willpower and do anything they can not to stutter. They would actually tell them that they shouldn't speak unless they could be sure that they can speak right. So, of course, when you tell the child that, they might pick up on some anger management issues as well. But more importantly than that, they're going to stop speaking altogether because they're just going to start being withdrawn. So the result was that all of these kids in the second group became anxious, withdrawn, and just silent and just refused to speak to anybody. What came out of this dumbass study? Well, it was never published because of multiple ethical violations to it. And according to Washington Post, Mary was actually feeling remorse about this, so she eventually returned to this orphanage to help these children that she bullied again regain some confidence and speak again. The Iowa University publicly apologized for it in 2001, and Johnson Spears really feared that this is going to smear his reputation, so they kept this hidden especially because the Second World War was around the corner, so they kept it really on the hush-hush all the way up until the war was over and the study was discovered. And Johnson, was his license taken for this unethical thing? No, Mm -mm. despite everything he has done, his speech and hearing clinic at the University of Iowa still has his name. And he is still recognized for the contributions in his field, but is mostly recognized for the monster study. Eventually, once the rules have changed and the ethical boards were introduced, some of the kids managed to sue the university and the state of Iowa, and three survivors in 2007 managed to settle for a total of $925,000. I should have put a disclaimer that this episode, if anything, will fill you with rage. So listen to it if you need to really take it out on somebody, because nobody wins, truly. Nobody wins. Number nine. In number nine, we have the Bobo doll experiment. So I studied this at uni, and I was like, okay, I must include this, because it's just so interesting. And the basis is, well, the same principle that people are still researching today, which is whether seeing violence portrayed in TV, in movies, in games, actually induces violence in children. In 1961, psychologist Albert Bandura started this experiment that was meant to demonstrate the ways in which children learn behavior, and whether it can be learned by just watching other people in action. At Stanford University, he took 72 primary-age children, placed a percentage of them in the room, where they were to watch an adult take their anger out on this inflatable doll named Bobo. This is one of those bouncy dolls that you would punch, it would kind of flip backwards and then come back at you, and then, you know, you have to punch it over and over again. And kids obviously don't understand how these bouncy things work, so they might be seeing it as a threat as well. 
Bandura also split it in three different stages. The first one was modeling, so there to witness the adult punch a doll, swear at it, use nasty language, and the second group wouldn't see this. Then stage two would be aggression arousal. So he would put them in the room and give them different toys. Some of those toys would be BB guns, though. And they had the option to bring these toys to another room and show how are they going to release frustration, like what they're going to do. Literally, there was no advice. Like, it's just them, the doll, and the toys. And if you know this experiment, you probably know this one boy who is, like, pointing this gun at the doll in all these different places. And it's kind of creepy seeing, like, a young boy kind of threatening a doll that they might be threatened by or just because they have seen this aggression being shown from an adult to the doll. And stage three would be delayed imitation. So that's when they're to take out the frustration. And what he managed to prove is that those who have seen the adults being aggressive would take it out on this doll. So his conclusions were that we learn how to cope with aggression just by watching different role models in our life. So, you know, if you were to be brought up in a home where you see your dad punching your mom, like when referring to true crime, then you're more likely to grow up and find that this is normal and just continue this circle of domestic abuse. But then in 1963, he conducted another experiment where whoever was to punch a Bobo doll would get rewarded for their actions. So think like game and achievements. There's so many games where you level up by killing X amount of people, by fighting in a war, like doing all these sadistic actions, and then that's kind of what drives you. You get accomplished, you get a thumbs up. And in this experiment, if they saw a role model, an adult received punishment, they were less likely to take it out on this doll when they were left in the room with it alone. So this experiment further proved that based on the consequences of your environment, you can decide on how to react. This one isn't as creepy it is when you actually watch it on the screen, but it's just interesting because he did actually prove what he set out to prove, and that is that this kind of behavior is learned. But it also reminded me, <laughs> I struggled to get through all of this to tell you that there is a TikTok account out there that brings me so much joy in, in my life. There is this woman that is literally just punching this, like, torso. You know how you have, like, those for, like, first aid and stuff, like, torso models? So she puts different, like, leather jackets on this torso, like, glasses, <laughs> I don't know where she found this. Did she steal it from like a shop window? I have no idea. But she just takes out her anger, punches the shit out of the store. So, and that is her whole TikTok account. And I was like, I don't know how I landed here. I don't know how this found me, but I'm glad it did. <laughs> and it just reminded me of the Bobo doll experiment. So I was like, I have to include this on my list. It just has to be there because it just triggers something in your head when you see it. You're like, I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, she's not harming anybody, but would she? <laughs> the questions that are left unanswered. Number eight. This is when we are taking the curveball category. We are just taking the sharp left turn because we are talking about the prison inmates used as test subjects in Kligman's 1951 experiment. So Kligman was this dermatologist at the University of Pennsylvania when he began experimenting on inmates at Philadelphia's Holmesburg prison. 
over 20 years, these inmates are going to volunteer for Kligman to use their bodies in experiments involving different things from toothpaste to deodorant to shampoo, different skin creams, detergents, food powders, hair dyes, literally anything that goes on skin in these prisons. The way he saw it, though, is two of the creepiest lines that I have probably ever heard. All I saw before me were acres of skin. I felt like a farmer seeing a fertile field for the first time. To which I say, if you're this fascinated with just like one part of somebody's body, in this case like the outer layer of somebody's body, and you don't seek therapy, just please start, please. The way forward is being obsessed with multiple parts of the body. Yeah, mm-hmm. you get obsessed with torso. You can't just be a torso lover, you want to love butts too. Your ass is grass and I'm gonna mow it. Okay, stop it, Ina Belcher. Stop it. <laughs> Get it out of the system already. Your ass is grass and I'm gonna mow it. Leave me alone! Kligman was funded for this project. Oh yeah, he got a 10k grant. But guess what he paid his participants? He paid them $1 a day. $1 a day. And it goes without saying that most of these participants were... People of color, mostly black. So his project was to observe how human skin reacts to harsh chemicals, the process that he himself named hardening. But he also escalated the testing psychoactive drugs on them, on their skins. Of course, these prisoners were never told what they were testing, they were never told name of any substances that they could potentially cause cancer or other diseases. Nope, none of that. Why would one part of the experiment be ethical if everything else isn't? One of the chemicals Kligman was testing was dioxin, which is this active ingredient in Agent Orange. And Agent Orange is technically like a chemical that's used in warfare, should not be used on skin is what I'm saying. His results were, well, that none of the inmates experienced long-term harm. But if there are any findings that this guy has compiled somewhere, uh, they're not really known. No, you see, he never felt like he did anything wrong, but he also never published any of his research because he kind of knew that he did something wrong. But he went forward to actually become a successful dermatologist and create Retin-A, which is the form of vitamin A that helps the skin renew itself. This product is actually, well, used kind of in anti-aging products to reduce the appearance of wrinkles and mottled skin discoloration and to make the rough facial skin feel smoother. So next time when you see the commercial for an anti-aging cream, just remember, remember where it came from. Remember that the guy that developed the ingredient in it in the first place tested toxic chemicals on black inmates in a prison back in the day. Number seven. You, you gotta have a perv on the list. Like, what is my list if I do not have one pervert on it, at least? In number seven, we have tea room sex study. Tea room sex was what people referred to oral sex in public bathrooms back in the day. And well, there was this sociologist that was called Lord Humphreys. And this is not like, oh Lord, you know, when you say like Lord differently. No, his name was L-A-U-D, because he was special. So our boy Lord here, what kept him awake at night, were men that would commit these impersonal sexual acts 
better known as blowies, with one another in public bathrooms. Before he started being kept awake by this at night, he worked at a psychiatric hospital, and this is where he learned about psychoanalysis for male homosexuals. So he became OG Snitch, he became the OG Takashi 69, or as he likes to call it, a researcher. He thought, and I kid you not, where does a regular guy go to get a blowjob? So he realized it's to the tea rooms, to which I asked, how did you know Lord, H- how did you know? Uh-huh. Is this one of those, like, asking for a friend kind of instances? You're like, hey, I was just wondering, or were you a perv from day one, Lord? Because it kind of sounds like it. In 1965, LA, they had a problem. Well, they had a problem because they haven't legalized homosexual behavior. They haven't legalized gay marriages and all that. So out of 493 felony charges for supposed homosexual behavior, 276 people were arrested in public bathrooms. So this pervert lord, he volunteers, and he goes to the police and is like, listen, I'm going to be your watch queen. Mm -hmm. You're going to call me a watch queen, which... if there's a single, which <laughs> I mean, you can't choose a title, a watch queen, and expect people to look at you like, yeah, you're so straight, like, you're like super straight, such a straight arrow, go call him watch queen. He proposed to the police, he's gonna go spy, he's gonna make floor plans to them, there are images of this online, I'm not lying to you, with like blind spots, with like the outline of different urinals and like stalls and where would it happen where is it most likely to happen where you can observe it from so he continued and performed 50 observations he also interviewed some of these people that he'd observed and that people the people that he observed and interviewed had a name which was the intensive dozen listen sometimes the joke just writes itself you you have to do nothing you have to just sit and be like the intensive dozen. Again, super straight names that he is choosing for everything he does in life. Now a police snitch, he gets a power trip because his best part is with the police, so he convinces them to actually, because he's a researcher, guys, we forget, we forget. It's easy to forget when he is working under cover of being a pervert, but he would go and get license plates from these people that he found in public restrooms, giving like blowjobs to others, and then he would go back to the police and would pull all of these data on them, like their demographics, their age, who do they live with? Are they married? Are they not? His results found that there were four types of participants. Trade, ambisexual, gay, and closet queens. So he found 54% of these subjects were married, and 38 were clearly neither bisexual nor homosexual. So his research kind of actually did some good, I guess. Was it pointless? In my opinion, yes, because I could have told him a couple of these things. Like, he shattered stereotypes held by public and law enforcement. The one I could have shattered without spying and perving on people in public restrooms would be that most of these people were actually really conservative in real life. Like, you don't say, you know? All of these people who appear to be, like, such decent humans in real life and then they just want to get it off and, like, they want their dick sucked. Yeah, I could have told you that, sir. You don't have to fucking perv on multiple people to, to find that out. Just use common sense. 
But he also concluded that most of these encounters were harmless and posed no danger or harassment to straight men. So the police was like, okay, as long as you, sir, you main pervert in town right now, say that straight men will be okay, they will do okay, they will survive, it's fine. We can go and focus on other crimes now, because that is what happened. He proved to the police that these encounters were a victimless crime, and they were able to focus on other crimes. Interesting, I've heard, you know, 60s, 70s, like, serial killers were out on the loose, so, I mean, that's great that they could finally focus from tea room trades to serial killers. Wow. Wow, I mean, we should actually thank the Lord. Thank you, dear Lord. Number six. In number six on our list of evil human experiments is Landis Facial Expressions Experiment. Who was Landis? Well, 1924, Carney Landis, who was a psychology graduate at the University of Minnesota, he thought, why not develop an experiment to determine if emotions create facial expressions that are specific to that emotion. So this guy thought everybody experiencing one emotion, like let's say fear or rage, it's the same fucking emotion, Maya. Listen, that's my problem with therapy, okay? Every single time I had therapy, I could not name fucking emotions. You put guns to my head. I'm like, um, I feel different. She's like, no, that's not, that's not it. <laughs> that's not it. What's like, do you have any joy in you, woman? So this guy thought every single emotion, every single person would trigger the same exact response. And by that, the same facial muscles would move in your face when you're exposed to the exact same things. How will that go for him? You might wonder. Well, first of all, most of his experiments were conducted on students because he's already tuny. So he would take them to a lab and then he would paint their faces with black lines. If you aren't watching this on YouTube, well, now is the good time to start and uh, join us at this timestamp or, you know, start from the beginning. But, you know, if you're scrubbing at the toilet and listening to this on audio, the one thing I compare this to is, you know, the plastic surgery and how they, like, would draw you up, like, you know, where they're gonna cut and how they're gonna do it. Yeah. So he would do that, but to people's faces, so that once these muscles move, he can easily see it. He started these students off by them smelling ammonia to see how they react. Then it was things like, oh, tell me a lie, and then he would note down the muscle movements. But then he's like, this is not groundbreaking enough. It's just like, I can't, like, what do I publish? Like, they're not giving me what I want. Then he started exposing them to different stimuli in forms of pornography, you guessed it, or firing a gun. And then still, he'll be like, I see different facial expressions. What could it mean? Possibly, it cannot possibly mean that I am wrong. Never. So he did this thing, which I cannot remember, which like late night show host did this. Was it like Ellen or was it Jimmy Fallon? Probably one of the two. You know, when they ask a person to like, they cover this box and they ask them to put their hand into the box and fill up what's in there and try to guess what it is and it's the creepiest thing. And I can't believe this was like happening. <laughs> literally, like I've seen this like a few years ago. While this experiment was literally from 1924. Well, 
what was in this bucket or box that he was making them touch, they were live frogs. But then he'd be like, okay, cool, you reacted to that, cool. Now keep keep touching, there's something else there in this box. And they would keep touching and then they would get electrocuted because it would be a bunch of electrical wires that he would leave in this box. But this is not even the most controversial thing, because what Landis did next was to give these students a live rat and give them instructions on how to behead it. So all of the participants were hesitant, they were repelled by this idea, but one third still did it. They still beheaded a rat. And for those who didn't, who refused to do it, well, Landis would pick up a knife and behead the rat himself in order to note down their facial expressions. So it causes no surprise that the consequences of this study is more of why did these people actually choose to follow his instructions and to actually behead the rat? Why were they willing to do this? Like, without any reward, without getting anything out of it. And, well, what he actually set out to do didn't really bring many conclusions except that he was wrong and uh, that humans have a common set of unique facial expressions. And because of his escalations, he also realized not every situation would lead to same facial responses. And I put a good alternative for this guy would have been not to kill any rats or animals in general and just to go to funerals. And see, you know, some people react to funerals like me and they kind of like laugh and have the nervous laughter because they just can't deal with the overall like negativity of the whole situation and the overall grief. And then some people are normal. So that would have been a good alternative for this moron. But regardless, and this, you might start picking up on a pattern here, Landis still managed to have a successful career and continue to do a bit more of an ethical research than this. But this is what he is still remembered for today. <laughs> to which I put, I feel like if he was to do some dumb shit like this today, he would have been cancelled. Kind of like David Dobrik. Is, uh, is David Dobrik going to get cancelled, guys? <laughs> is anybody else going to keep watching his shit? Because if you are, uh, please tell me. Why? Why are you going to keep interacting? It's not like, you know, he's super talented. It's not like the JK Rowling situation. I mean, even that is questionable. Or like R. Kelly situation. Even more questionable. This is like, this guy did vlogs. And then he got involved in sexual assault. So, you know, it's like, was there ever really a talent as such for you to continue supporting this? Hmm? I think you just pet all over the microphone. Number five on this listicle is the Aversion Project. You know how I told you that number five to one is just grim? You might need to catch a breath. Yeah, this is when it starts. During the apartheid in South Africa, there was this army colonel and psychologist that was called Dr. Aubrey Levine, and he was put in charge of curing the country's homosexuals. Yeah, there's a lot of these that are just around people's sexuality, so they might be triggering. Like this one, very triggering. 
During this time, South African government had strict anti-homosexual laws, especially if you were to serve in the armed forces. You couldn't be gay, and serving in the army was obligatory. So, you know, I don't know, they didn't really think that one through, did they? Which meant that South African apartheid army would force white lesbian and gay soldiers to undergo sex change operations in 70s and 80s. And of course, it didn't even end there. So army psychiatrists would suspect somebody was homosexual just by their behavior, literally nothing else, and then they would dispatch those to military psychiatric units, Ward 22 or one military hospital near Pretoria. They would start off with aversion shock therapy, meaning to reorientate them. But then, during this therapy, like homosexual men or women would be shown pictures of naked people of the same sex. And then, you know, these psychiatrists would judge them, like, you know, if they were to get aroused or anything, and based on that would shock them again. If these psychiatrists were to realize, like, all of the drugs, the electroshock therapy wasn't working, well, then they were subjected to hormone therapy. If that didn't work the next thing would be to surgically turn them into the opposite gender. So men would be surgically turned into women, against their will, obviously, and then would be set out into the world, because now they were women. And the gender reassignment, they didn't care much about this gender reassignment, so in a lot of instances it would even be incomplete, and they would be set out into the world out of this army without any means to pay for the hormones to now maintain this new identity that they were given in the army. The surgeons in the army estimate that they have done this to as many as 900 people, the sexual reassignment part in particular, and most of the victims were 16 to 24-year-olds that were just drafted into the apartheid army. You're hearing this now and thinking, okay, wait, what happened with the Levin guy? Because just Maya, please tell me for the peace of mind that he, you know, like, was done the same. He went for the same karma, right? (laughs) No. He left South Africa once the apartheid ended, to avoid being named the abuser of human rights. Because he's, this guy is a special piece of shit. There's so many now between five and one, but this guy has a special place in hell reserved right for him. He went to Canada and started teaching at a uni because they didn't know of his previous history. That is, until 2010. This is when his license was suspended because of what? Can you guess? Can can you guess? He made sexual advances towards a male student. A male. Male versus a male. (laughs) So, in 2014, he was only sentenced to five years, uh, but he only served two, so he's out. He was out in 2016. He's, He's out now. 30 men. 30 men came forward claiming they were assaulted by him during counseling sessions. He only served two years for this. It's a bit on the nose. I say put him through the same fucking hell that he put other people through. Like, come on. He put like homosexual, he thought homosexuals are deserving of this, and then what? You turn homosexual? Can't do this, Levin. Can't do this. No, I think karma needs to be served here. Number four. 
Okay, this one is heartbreaking. I just, I just gotta warn you. I watch the interview on Oprah. I, I have so many thoughts. Number four on this list is the unnecessary sexual reassignment experiment. There were quite a few, actually. I'm not gonna lie to you. A lot more than I wanted to see on these lists when I was researching this. But this, in particular, was the case of David Reimer. David was born in 1965. What I said here. And people back in the day didn't know how to circumcise people, you know, really well. So when they would fuck up, this is what would happen. David was born as a twin brother, but when they tried to circumcise him at seven months old, he was accidentally castrated. So his parents decided to contact this guy called John Money, who was a professor of psychology and was also researching the development of gender. So this guy, like so many fucked up people in history, saw like, oh, hey, but actually this is identical twins. Let's conduct a fucked up experiment. This is literally the thoughts of like every Nazi German soldier. Like, I just don't understand. I will never understand. Moni advised Reimer's parents to have David sexually reassigned as a female. So his theory was that gender is a completely sociological construct and is influenced by nurture as opposed to nature. Sweet, sweet, great, progressive thinking, Moni. He was, of course, wrong in Reimer's case. But, I mean, in general, he was just wrong. Moni, of course, conducts this operation and the parents start raising David as Brenda, as a girl. And Moni, without any issue, started using this as the evidence that gender identity is primarily learned. He's gonna just grow up as a girl. Of course, Reimer struggled his whole life. And I'm sorry, but I will never understand his parents. Like, I kind of know, because I watched this Oprah interview, why they didn't tell him what happened until he was 14? Because they were afraid that he is going to reject them, that he is obviously going to just leave and never forgive his parents for not telling him that. But for 14 years, like, it's freaking torture. He was bullied, he was stuck, not feeling like a girl, not feeling like he belonged in the girl's body. Like, just imagine being in school. Like, he talks, like, I wanted to play football. I wanted to do this. Like, I wanted to hang out with the guys. Like, you know, I wanted to feel attracted to girls. But then I was the girl, so I was, like, ostracized. The girls wouldn't let him use their bathroom because he didn't really look like one and then the boys wouldn't let him use the bathroom because of course like he was Brenda he was identifying as a girl and then they would make him like pee in the school parking his life was just freaking hell and I, I'm sorry but I will never understand why his parents just waited for 14 years to actually tell him that hey actually there was this fucked up person that reassigned your gender at your birth so at the age of 14, why they actually told him this was, well, because he was growing up, so he had to go through another surgery to get, like, a full vagina set up, because that couldn't be done once, like, he was a baby. And he was just refusing to go through this. He was rebelling. He was like, this is not what I feel should happen. This is not who I identify as. And that's when his mom finally told him. So they went to Oprah eventually, and... Um, he forgave his mother on there. Well, I think he did before that Oprah interview, but he did on television as well. 
And this story, if you know of it, like, won't end up well. Reimer went public with the story and tried to help discourage similar practices from ever happening again. But he couldn't live with this. Even on Oprah, he just looked like distressed and like the whole life was just on top of him and was just shattering him inside so he killed himself at the age of 38 after suffering with severe depression Morty though, uh, well his writing was translated to all these different languages he wrote different articles, books chapters and reviews he received around 65 honors and awards and degrees uh, during his lifetime and he has not publicly ever spoken about this, never addressed it, never said that he was wrong at all and uh, he died when he was 84 years old of Parkinson's disease so let just that stick in your mind. The person that he has done this to killed himself at the age of 38. This bitch lived the longest life and then just died of, not natural causes, but died of the old age and Parkinson's. I hope he couldn't sleep every night just having this role, having that Oprah interview just go back and forth in his head. Just like that mouse running on a freaking wheel. Just hope he was haunted by David's ghost his whole life. I truly, truly hope. We're down to the last three numbers on this list. What could be worse than everything you have just said, Maya? Well, <laughs> you have no idea. Number three just says Gulag, because it's it's Gulag. It's uh, Gulag is a Russian prison, if you're not aware of, which kind of beats anything you could see on prison break, like season three onwards really because everybody compares prisons to prison break right <laughs> no just me okay well gulag is a labor camp that was set up during the peak time that stalin ruled in 1930s to the early 1950s so soviet secret services set up the poison laboratory in gulag during that time and it was known as laboratory one or laboratory 12 or what it was known worldwide, is either the chamber or the cell. And this was a covert poison research and development facility, which was within a prison. So you guess who they were tested poisons on. Wow, yeah, good job, good job. I think you're nailing it already. <laughs> it only took, like, dissolution of soul with, like, seven other cases, but I think we're there. Prisoners. And the prisoners that were sent to labor camps were, of course, what Russia and Soviet Union at the time considered the worst of the worst. So those were spies, those were some former military officials, and also, if you were a Russian spy at the time, but then Stalin thought, oh, actually, he knows a bit too much, then you were marked as the enemy of the people, as the rest of those that were sent to Gulag. And this is where all of these scientists would test poisons like mustard gas, ricin, and many others on you. The ultimate goal of these experiments was to find something that's tasteless, that doesn't smell, that's odorless, and most importantly, that can't be detected post-mortem. And in particular, these scientists would get off knowing that they're giving these poisons covertly as like part of the meal or drink or as medication to somebody. 
And the creepiest thing, this is literally every horror movie shit, these poisons in most instances would make these prisoners conscious but paralyzed. This is the shit of some nightmares, I swear to God. And there was, of course, one person that was in charge and that was truly the, the psychopath of the unit. Myronovsky committed his life's work to this practice with these different poisons and to figure out what works fast versus what will cause a slow death. Because depending on, you know, what kind of rank are you as the enemy of the state... Well, they might give you the one that will kill you fast. They might want to torture you under that poison. And he, during wild testing and testing, wild testing and retesting on many prisoners, he developed his masterpiece that was called C2 or K2, I think, in like Eastern countries. So he tested on prisoners of different shapes and sizes and then when he discovered, like, all of these combined chemicals, put these C2 together, well, he would give it to prisoners, and the victim would immediately change physically, would become shorter, and would quickly weaken, become calm, but silent, and would die within 15 minutes. The person becoming shorter, there's something so eerie about it, like, how, how... Just how did you get there? Like, how is that the side effect of a poison? Or, well, the desired effect, rather. Maranovsky brought to this lab people of different physical conditions, different ages, in order to have a more complete picture. He did not discriminate, you guys. This experiment on our list actually leads to a conspiracy that I will not dive further than this into, and that's a conspiracy that Stalin himself was poisoned, because the way he died was that he had like a meal with a lot of these people that worked at his lab, the chamber, and that that's when he just dropped down. And well, they marked it as a heart attack because they couldn't find any traces of anything in his body. While the chamber people were all this time developing odorless, tasteless, untraceable poisons. Sounds a bit sus, if you ask me. And this might be a bit of a myth, but business kind of continued as usual. And there are the speculations that the cell never fell with the fall of Soviet Union and that it might have just involved and they might still be doing this very covertly and very skillfully. Myronovsky, well, he was arrested in 1951. Uh, he served about 10 years in prison, but then he was released and uh, he owned a biochemical lab. The moral of the miniso today is that I am so glad so happy that these ethical boards and systems are put in place because I would still believe to this day that a lot of people would try to do one of these freaking human experiments and would never receive consequences because that's what we learned today. Would never receive any consequences for their actions. Number We're down to the last two experiments on this list saved the worst for last trust. In number two is Tuskegee syphilis study. 
In 1930s in Alabama, there was a wide-believed conspiracy that AIDS that was ravaging through the African-American community was created by the government to eliminate African-Americans. And what happened in Alabama in 1932 might be one of the explanations for these fears. At the time, there was no treatment for syphilis, really. They were treated with things like mercury, which would cause kidney failure, mouth ulcers, tooth loss, like mercury is extremely toxic and would eventually lead to death. So government decided to fund doctors and see if there is a better way to treat syphilis on the surface. What could go wrong? So on the surface, this is a governmental-funded study. People started, you know, looking into what could treat syphilis. But then the funds kind of went short and they still were like, no, we must continue. We must cure this disease. Like think kind of how people would go about cancer today. would be like, okay, cool. The government can't fund it. We need to introduce all of these funding events. We need to do like marathon runs, whatnot, to fund cancer research. Well, they didn't do exactly that, did they? The researchers here decided to hire 600 poor, illiterate, black male sharecroppers from the Macon County in Alabama. Out of 600 of these men, only 399 previously had syphilis, but it wasn't affecting their life. It wasn't life-threatening to them. But still, they were like, okay, cool, we'll participate in this because researchers promised them free healthcare, meals, and burial insurance in exchange for participating. And this study continued even though penicillin, which was proven to be effective for curing syphilis, was developed in 1947. They would tell these people that they're being treated for bad blood, and then they would contract them with the disease. So whether they would ask them to sleep together, there are some creepy ones because there's a few of the syphilis studies around the world as well. There's a Guatemalan one as well, but they would basically sometimes like um, scrape like their genitals and then would expose them to the bacteria related to syphilis to infect them. And then once both males and females would be infected with syphilis, and if any of them were couples, then the children would be born with congenital syphilis as well. It was not until 1972 the newspaper article came out exposing this study that the officials actually shut it down. They were like, oh, this is fucking creepy as shit. What do you mean you're like scraping people's genitals and infecting them with syphilis? But... At this point, only 74 out of 600 subjects, if you remember, were still alive. 28 patients died directly from syphilis, 100 died from complications related to it, 40 wives were infected with syphilis, and 19 children were born with congenital syphilis. Then I watched a video that said, because of course I look at like compensation, like somebody must have been compensated. So 74 of them were compensated by 9 million, but it was to be spread out between them. So of course I took my calculator out. So each person was to only get $121,000. <laughs> not enough. Just not, just simply, simply not enough for what that can't even cover like medical bills for you in the US I just no, what, what can you do with with that money after all these years in the freaking US? it's nothing nothing 
But in 1997, President Bill Clinton formally apologized to those collected, so hey, they at least had their apology, which I bet that meant so much more to them than any normal, decent compensation would. Mm-hmm. We are down to the last one on the list. Something tells me this is not a mini-sode. Maybe it's the fact that I've already been recording this for two hours. Maybe it's the fact that I researched it for two days. <laughs> Potato, potato, but remember how I said that I audibly gasped this one? Because number one on our list is Unit 731. What is it? Well, Unit 731 started as this agency to promote public health. It was meant to simply conduct research to benefit Japanese soldiers and make them learn more about the ways in which human body can go through hunger and first and fight diseases. But then it happened in 1930s and 1940s, which means it happened under the cover of the war. And war crimes are morbid enough, but the crimes that happened under the cover of the war while the whole world was just paying attention to what was going on on the battlefields were horrific, were the worst of the worst. So Japanese Imperial Army conducted biological warfare and medical testing on civilians in China. Although this appeared innocent on the surface, as many as 200,000 may have died according to a report by New York Times. As every single experiment on this list had a number one star, number one psychopath, this one of course does as well, and his name is Shiro Ishii. So Ishii was advocating for creation of Japanese bioweapons program. So in 1928, he became this tour of the West to research these weapons to be used in warfare, and as doing so, he started being super respected by the Japanese Minister of the Army. And once you're respected by another psychopath, then what that allows you to do is whatever you want. This meant that Ishii would be promoted to senior army surgeon, would become assistant surgeon general, and surgeon general in 45. So under him, in this unit, which again, think about it as like an isolated prison, technically, where they would conduct these experiments, they would start off testing the prisoners by taking them out in the cold until their limbs would fall apart and they would die. And that was done Logically, you, you are thinking it, not because they were psychos, no, because scientists were to see how to best treat frostbite. The next experiment was one of the horror movies as well, and that was vivisection. This would mean that they would infect these prisoners with a disease, and then they would operate on the patients while they were awake and alive, without anesthesia. They would call these people logs. Again, they would just separate quite like Nazi Germany or Stalin's Russia. They would just completely separate from these people and see them as objects. They would dehumanize them. And they just said, because of course these people would scream, would go through insane pain and would eventually die at this desk while being operated on. And these scientists, under inverted commas, just said they wanted to know what happened inside once you infect somebody with a poison. 
One other such experiment would be to study the untreated venereal diseases, in which case they would infect male and female prisoners with syphilis or gonorrhea, and then they would study them. They would force these people to have sex with each other, and they would infect the kids as well, never to get pregnant. Once they were infected, as if this isn't hellish enough, they would then vivisect them to figure out how it affected their internal organs. So eventually you're gonna die anyways. You're just gonna go through incredible pain and torture and you are gonna die. They would also test weapons on these prisoners and it included everything. You can be just tied up to a pole and a firing squad can fire at you just for them to test out their guns. But of course, it went even more sinister than that to the events such as throwing grenades at people. And then, of course, they would drop them down for wherever they were tied to, and then they would analyze their bodies, because the experiment was to see what damage these weapons could do. The one thing that I really, truly just gasped and screamed at was this next one, because I just cannot... It's called pressure chamber, and it does exactly what you think it does. It's like putting a human in a dryer. So they would put them in these pressure chambers until their eyes popped and they obviously eventually died. Or they would spun them to death for military to test centrifugal forces. Because, you know, they didn't have washing machines at the time, so they tested shit on humans. Not laundry, humans. But at the end of war and coming of the Red Army in August 1945, they had to abandon this work. They had to rush and abandon this work and leave it all behind. So the ministries in Tokyo, of course, ordered for the destruction of everything. Anything and everything, all this research that was, you know, super ethical and was totally to be published. No, anything incriminating had to go. Which meant potential witnesses, anybody that might have survived in this very instance, also had to be gassed to death. So 300 remaining prisoners were either gassed or fed poison, while the 600 Chinese laborers were shot. And Ishii, as a wonderful man he is, he ordered every member of the group, everybody that was inflicting this onto these prisoners, to disappear, get lost, and take this secret to the grave. Guys, I thought we had a deal. I thought you were going to tell me when the disco ball behind me gives up on me. Apparently not. <laughs> Half of this video is just probably that thing has given up on me, like, after the second thing on this list. Oh, and Ishii kind of failed at covering this up, so the Japanese Army's Unit 731 was discovered and converted into the Exhibition Hall, and it stands to this day as a museum to the unit and the atrocities that were committed there. Uh, but... Ishii, somehow, by some power in this universe, was granted immunity by the American occupation authorities at the end of the war. He never spent any time in jail, and he died at the age of 67 of throat cancer. So, at least, that one hurt as a bitch. Because that one, I just... I need it. I, I need it to hurt as a bitch. Because... It's a piece of shit. I can bet it did not hurt as much as vivisections, but hopefully to a certain degree, it just hurt as a bitch. And then, you know what? You can't really swallow painkillers when you have road cancer, right? Because that hurts even more. So it's like, mm, you're a bit stuck there, aren't you? <sighs> so hey, we made it, guys. <laughs> we made it. Which one did you think 
is the worst? Did you agree with me? Would you have sorted them out in any different order? I don't know why I went down a deep dive and then looked like every single YouTube video that's made on every single one of these after like researching them as well, just to add a couple of details, just to make them more interesting. Having said that, also let me know what you thought about this style of episodes. You know, I try to experiment when it comes to minisodes and then really go loose, like from small cases to different patterns and different crimes to stuff like lists. So this month, I said, okay, let's do lists. Let's do something I haven't done before. So I'd like to know what list would you like me to do for the next minister of the month? What 10 things would you like me to cover? Would you like it to be prison breaks? That would be cool. Maybe lighter than this. Anything. Literally anything that is tiny bit lighter than this and can give me some hope for humanity. Cool? You let me know down in the comments or email the girl podbam at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter or Instagram that bam pod alluding to that 70s show, of course. Best tune. Best intro tune ever. And while you do that, also have a sick weekend, relax, completely distressed after this stressful episode, release your anger management to like a pillow or something, or buy one of those statues that that woman has in her TikTok, so you know, a Boba doll, or an inflatable doll, and release your anger onto something else in the privacy of your home, and in doing so, keep making this world a better place, one motive at a time. Have a sick weekend. Have it. Have it. Have it, have it all. <laughs> have a good weekend and I will see you on Monday.